the description of today, this, this is a new name for a, for a day long. I haven't done it before. But it's really where I am thinking these days uh, about uh, what really matters about practice. What the Buddha taught in, in, in brief is that uh, this is the life that we face, all of us as human beings, 10,000 joys and 10,000 woes, things that happen that are difficult, things that happen that are delightful and desirable. And in between, we kind of make our way and try to keep hold ourselves together. Um, I was thinking on the way down this morning, a very close friend of mine died on Wednesday afternoon after a two-year illness, and uh, certainly it wasn't a surprising death, and as death goes, it was quite easy and quite beautiful and surrounded with an enormous aura of love and caretaking and was beautiful to be a part of and uplifting and holy and felt like I'd been part of a two-week-long sacrament. And on the other hand, I'm, I miss her profoundly and I'm really sad about it. And I watch how my mind is for in a moment uplifted and thinking about the potential of human love and how human beings are in the world, and then the next minute I think, and she's gone. Or I read the morning newspaper and I think about the potential of human beings to behave with such incredible selfless love and the potential of human beings to do terrible things to each other. And it's as if I don't have room in my mind to do it, to hold those, those paradoxes. I think I read the morning newspapers and I see the troubles all over the world and uh, I'm embarrassed to think about, to notice how much space the annoyances of my own personal life take up in my own mind in terms of what I think about, in terms of the things that I could think about in the world. Think about, I could be thinking about world peace or praying for peace on earth and I'm thinking about why thus and thus doesn't happen with one of my children or the other of my children. It's embarrassing to think that the mind is so petty, but it is. Except maybe yours isn't. Is yours not? But mine is. Mine is. And so I think about the way, as I'm more and more, I'm beginning to think of practice as a way of keeping the space in my mind large enough. Now, truly, I do not think the mind takes up physical space. Nor do I think, I don't think it's in the same plane as this physical being. And I don't think it's in my head either. But I do have a sense of mind and what fills my mind. And I know that when my mind is relaxed and uh, at ease, not pulled in with tension, that it has a broader view, that it's able to remember what else is true about the world. It's able to see things in a larger context. It's able to see this loss in the context of everything arises and passes away, which is actually the last thing the Buddha said before he died that my mind stays reasonably wise, not because I've accumulated wisdom, but because I think all of us are reasonably wise. I wonder if I should tell you this story now or later. <laughs> um, maybe I'll tell it to you now. It's a, it's a good story. It wasn't, I, wasn't, I wasn't going to, but it sort of came up, reasonably wise. And then we'll sit after that. What we're going to do today is we are going to practice the heart of the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path are the, are the eight training uh, avenues that the Buddha laid out for 
developing a mind that kept itself clear, unconstricted, able to see clearly what was true, and on the basis of that seeing, respond with compassion. The basis of what the Buddha believed is that we have the potential to see clearly as human beings. What we would see if we saw clearly is we would see that life is inevitably disappointing and challenging and difficult for everyone. It's also very miraculous and beautiful and extraordinary. You know, I write to my friends back east and I say, well, the daffodils are already finished, but the tulips are about to come out. And they write back and they say, whoa, don't even tell me that we're in a blizzard here, you know. But we're, but we're in California and the daffodils know when to come out. And in New York, there's a blizzard. And the world keeps doing its thing according to an incredible program of precision. And the daffodils look different, these and those, and the tulips are beautiful. So there's all this miracle of life and all the challenge of life. And the fact that things come and go and disappear. I was listening to a, um, a new Frank Sinatra CD that I just got as a present coming down. And I realized how many of the songs say, our love will last forever. And I think to myself, nothing lasts forever. Least of all, those kinds of passions of the moment. I know you'll be with me forever. And I'm thinking to myself, no, no. <laughs> No one will. It's a nice thought. That's why you feel so good when you hear that. <laughs> but how to hear it and know that it's not true and say it's all right anyway. You know, you have to have a mind that's pretty relaxed to say it's going to change and it'll be. It's all right anyway. You have to have a mind that stays relaxed so that it stays clear and holds what it knows to be true. What really is true for all of us. Here's the story. It's a silly story. I live half. I, I I live about a third of the year now in France. It's a recent development. My husband and I have bought a house there, and we spend every fourth month there. It's a very lucky and fortunate kind of way to spend your old years. And uh, so we uh, we we bought a very small house and we furnished it. And the last time we came back to it, the bed that we had bought from the antiquaire in our small town had been delivered, and with it came an uh, unexpected bill for 400 euros in addition to what we had already paid for the bed. That's a significant amount of money. And so I had phoned about it, and um, I discovered from Madame the Antiquaire that, in fact, because it's an antique bed and it was made in the 1840s, uh, it required a special kind of a mattress that was a a peculiar, not a stock size of mattress. It's 130 centimeters instead of 140. And now I'm very expert on mattress sizes. <laughs> and so it had to be made specially for this bed, and that's what had cost extra money. And even though we had decided otherwise, or we had understood otherwise, that's what happened. Malheureusement, she said, unfortunately, the bed is a peculiar size, had to have a special mattress. So we had that conversation on the phone, and then uh, I was on my way. I went back to see her in person to continue that discussion because I was urged on and uh, goaded on by my husband, who was very angry and who doesn't speak French, so who needed me to do that. So he said, tell her it's not fair. Tell her, explain to her 
that we, when we bought it, she explained that everything was included, including the mattress, and the price was based on that. And she said that's what it was going to be, and we paid up front, and uh, it was all supposed to be done, so this isn't fair and it isn't right, and you make that clear to her. And I said, look, uh, you know, Madame is an 85-year-old Auntie Care in a small town in France. She is not Macy's. You can't do this kind of a thing. But anyway, he, he said, if you don't talk to her, I'll talk to her. But he can't talk. He said, I'll pantomime. I'll show her how unhappy I am. I'll demonstrate it. He said, you make it clear. And you could tell her that she could, uh, if she can't give us back money, Maybe she could give us the end tables that, uh, <laughs> that you were looking at while you were there. It's a consolation present. So I went, and uh, I don't like to confront people just in general, and, and the French is my second language. So anyway, I go in my most polite French. I explain uh, that Bed is lovely. I'm very happy with it, as I am with all the other things we bought from her. However, I'd like to point out that we had arranged and all that things. I said it in the nicest way. And uh, we were quite shocked and uh, because we had always trusted her to be, et cetera, et cetera. I said, all right. I looked around pointedly at uh, all the uh, end tables around, <laughs> suggesting that she might want to do something to make us feel better about this whole thing. Because I said, even though we were quite happy with all the things we'd bought and all our previous business with her, I said, we were left with some very bad feelings about this, mauvaise émotion. So we were left with, very, with some mauvaise émotion. And all of a sudden, she looked so startled and so disturbed, you know. Really, um, she leaned forward and put her arm out to touch mine, and she said, oh, madame, she said, because this is all in French, of course, madame, she said, mauvaise émotion are very bad for you. <laughs> She said, you should let it go. <laughs> Forget about it. It's in the past. <laughs> then she said the most important, she said, these things happen. <laughs> so right away I knew in that moment three things. First of all, I knew I was not going to get any end tables. <laughs> I also knew she was right. And I also knew it was a really good story. <laughs> because the things that she said are exactly right. You should let go. Mauvaise émotion, very bad for you. They are. I mean, the whole... Now, the... the uh, contemporary literature is full of how uh, um, uh, grudges and anger really are bad for your physical health. And, and now uh, they now have the the uh, um, uh, scientific tools to prove that your blood pressure changes, everything about you changes, your brain wave changes. There are more happy brain waves and less unhappy brain waves. Everything changes when you forgive, when you say, you know, Mova's emotion not good for you, we know that. You should let it go. Of course you should let it go. We would if we could. 
Nobody purposely wants to suffer. Something like that happens, and it gets into your mind, and it plays like a record. It's not fair. It's not fair. And the mind chews it over. The fancy word for that mind chewing it over is perseverate. But it, it perseveres in that particular line of thinking. Like if you think it enough, it'll change. But it isn't going to change. It, it's, it's just like what it is. But the mind goes it over. The, she said that, but she promised. She said, a friend of mine said that the three words that have caused the most trouble in the history of human beings is it's not fair. You know, it's not fair. It's not fair. But that, okay, you should let it go. Of course you should, if you, if you could. But the whole point of telling you this story is that one of the uh, techniques of contemplative practice is being able to relax the mind and do something else with it when it is persevering in something that's causing it suffering. Mauvaise emotion, not good for you. You should let it go. It's in the past. Well, of course it's in the past, but it's in the present when you think about it. You know, because when you think about it, it comes up right now. You know, she said, and, you know, so in this moment comes up bad feelings about it. So nothing is really in the past if it, well, it happened in the past, but the moment of memory is difficult. You know, and moments of memory are so complicated. Uh, a contemporary psychologist, someone you may know, a uh, psychiatrist, actually, named Stan Graf, Stanislav Graf, done a lot of research with the mind. He had a wonderful um, metaphor that he told me years ago. He said, you know, I think the mind is like a, um, a sewing box, something like a sewing box, and it's full of bobbins. Anybody has a sewing box with bobbins, with threads in it? And you go with the red and purple and black and blue, and you look in to see if you have the bobbin that you need or the spool that you need. He said, the mind is like that, and when an experience happens, it gets filed on the same bobbin with other experiences. So times I have felt humiliated, other times I have been ripped off, other times I have made <laughs> foolish decisions, this, that. And so when something happens, you file it on that bobbin. And when you in the process of filing, the mind files it. You don't decide. You don't decide. The mind files it. Oh, yes, I remember this. Ding, 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 ding. Filed on the bobbin. And sometimes in the filing, it unrolls the whole bobbin. And then you remember all the other times that that happened. So it gets worse. It's not only this time, but that other time I foolishly thought, and the other time I foolishly thought. So it gets worse. It's in the past, but it's in the present and often augmented in the present. They're not good for you. You should let it go. It's in the past. And then she said the most important thing. She said, these things happen. You know, they do. Everything happens. You know, and you think every, every single thing that happened is a thing that happened. These things happen. People make mistakes about, about mattresses. People get sick with illnesses. People go out in the best of health and get in accidents. These things happen. And it's fair or it's not fair is not a category, really. It's, a, it's an editorial opinion, but it's not actually a category that has to do with human life. All kinds of things happen that aren't fair or right or desirable, but they're among the things that happen to human beings. These things happen. And to be able to say, um, someone once told me that the most important thing to be able to say to yourself uh, 
when you when the mind comes up against something that it does not want to have, is this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. And that, not in a mean way. When you think of everything that's terrible that's happened to you, it wasn't what you wanted, but it's what you got. And I actually think that the the goal or the point of contemplative practice is to restore the mind to a place where it can say that. It doesn't mean it likes it, but it means it stops fighting with it. This isn't what, it ha- what I wanted, but it's what I got. Because that leaves room, if you're busy fighting with it, that does not leave any room to say, what will I do now? What can I do? By the, by the end of that story, by the way, we have this interchange. And I leave the store with my husband, and he said, well, what did she say? <laughs> I said, well, she said, in essence, that's life. And uh, let's go look for some other end tables someplace else. You know, Because at that point, it's clear I'm not getting them there. We'll go look for some other kind of an end tables. The mind is now free to go do something else. That that when we're when the mind is able to say, okay, this isn't what I wanted, it's what I've got. It's free at that point to make a choice about what do I do next. Now we come back to the heart of the path and the three uh, the three aspects of the path that I want us to practice today. This is a minimal uh, recap of what the Buddha taught because there's so many people new to Spirit Rock you may not know that the Buddha's great enlightenment experience was in essence summarized in four sentences. He went out to discover the end of suffering. He said everybody suffers. Not only they have difficult things in their life, everybody has difficult things in their life, but it's so hard to assimilate those difficult things it's so hard to stay of good heart. It's so hard to stay uh, connected to life, to really think it's wonderful to be alive. Whom can I help? What can I do? It's very hard to stay in a caring connection when we feel assaulted by life. He said, you know, there, there is life and it will happen to everybody, but you could not suffer. And this is what he discovered. This was the, his four-sentence discovery about life said life is inevitably challenging for everyone, principally because it's undependable, because everything passes. At some point we'll be separated from everyone and everything that we love. Our health passes, our youth passes, our vitality passes. Everything passes. The most wonderful things in life pass. Everything passes. To be able to say, okay, and now this, and now this, and now this. That was the first noble truth. The second noble truth is that suffering in life is the irreconcilable desire to have things be other than what they are. The first is life is what it is. Things happen. The second is that suffering is what happens when we can't make ourselves, when we can't accommodate to what's happening, when we need to have something be different from how it is. I want for a lot of things to be different from how they are. Want very much for them to, for the wars in the world to be over, for there to be peace on the world, for people to share the resources of the world better. 
foods and medicine. There are a lot of things that I want. A lot of things that I want for my personal family. A lot of things that I want. And that, I think, is a completely normal and natural and healthy thing for human beings to want. As a matter of fact, I've been thinking, uh, I've been learning a lot um, by being with my friend who just died about how as the body begins really to die, how all kinds of appetites go along. It's not so interesting to watch a movie or plan a meal or have a meal or think about going someplace. That the normal appetites that we have, oh, that would be interesting, oh, that would be fun, oh, let's try to do this, oh, what can we do this summer? Those are parts of being a healthy person. I think about uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's uh, poem, uh, The world is so full of a number of things. I think we should all be as happy as kings. Do you remember that? It's interesting to be in a world. And as long as we're healthy, it's interesting. So you think these are lots of things that I want. But that's not really what the Buddha was talking about. He was talking about the irreconcilable need to have something. I, I want all those things. If I cannot say... I want them. If I get them, that's great. You know, I'm working on getting them. It's not like I'm waiting for them to fall in my lap. I'm planning this, I'm planning that. But if I can't be happy unless, that really is the tension in the mind. If I can't relax unless, if I can't love or feel compassion for myself or other people unless, then I am trapped in some kind of suffering. And I am often trapped in that kind of suffering. I often think about the metaphor about enlightenment, like you get there once and for all. I don't think you get there once and for all. I think you get there and then you suffer, and then you get there and you suffer. Many times a day, many times a day, in and out. Uh, The the, uh, metaphor that I like to use a lot about uh, uh, getting out of suffering is uh, the metaphor of the exodus from Egypt. It's a metaphor that I know well from my whole cultural background. And the, the point of that metaphor is we were held captive and then we were free. I think, to, and actually the word Egypt in Hebrew, the word Mitzrayim, means the narrow place. We got stuck in a narrow place and we got out. And I think to myself, I go out from Egypt many times a day. I just keep <laughs> circulating around. I don't get far from it. I get out, and then all of a sudden, whoops, I'm back in. I have to get out of Egypt again. It's a constant get out of Egypt. Every time I get annoyed and say, too many people on this freeway. Look, everybody's one person in a car. We can't get any place. I am one person in a car. <laughs> in that moment, when I could presumably be saying, you know, we should think about uh, conserving gas, but you know, I don't know how to do that. In the meantime, may everybody get to their place happily and in health. Suppose I blessed everybody on the freeway. May they all drive carefully so that we all arrive well. That would be a much more healthy thing to do than, you know, that. I have that choice all the time. Do I want the narrow place or do I want freedom? Actually, this is the first of the three parts of the path that I'm talking about. The three pieces, the Buddha prescribed eight things that we might practice. And I'll tell you about the five that we're not going to talk about in the course of the day, but the five that we are going to talk about are right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And right effort is the effort to see, I'm stuck, I want out of here, I have another choice. 
Right mindfulness is the ability to see what's going on. And right concentration is enough composure in the mind to support mindfulness, to be able to see what's going on, and to support the intention to keep watching. Am I stuck or am I free? Am I stuck or am I free? Just so we finish the Four Noble Truths and then we'll sit. The second is the mind stuck because it's not getting something that it wants. And it can't make space around that. It doesn't have to want it. Just has to make a space around it. Say, this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I've got. What can I do now? The fourth, the third noble truth is that we could do it another way. That we don't have to suffer. That we could learn ways for the mind to relax, clearly appraise the situation, and say, what can I do? What can I do? How can I hold this in another way? I can... uh, go down the street and buy some completely modern glass end tables that will look so interesting with this 1840s bed. They don't have to match. They could be quite the opposite. You think of something new. You make a mind big enough to have a perspective around the world. Maybe I'll read you the poem and then we'll see. This is about having a perspective. And this is Billy Collins, who is one of my current favorite poets. Do you know Billy Collins? Billy Collins, Poet Laureate. This poem is called Another Reason Why I Don't Keep a Gun in the House. (laughs) The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. He is barking the same high rhythmic bark that he barks every time they leave the house. They must switch him on on their way out. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. I close all the windows in the house and put on a Beethoven symphony full blast, but I can still hear him muffled under the music, barking, barking, barking. And now I can see him sitting in the orchestra, his head raised confidently, as if Beethoven had included a part for barking dog. When the record finally ends, he's still barking, sitting there in the oboe section, barking his eyes fixed on the conductor who is entreating him with his baton while the other musicians listen in respectful silence (laughs) to the famous barking dog solo, (laughs) that endless coda that first established Beethoven as an innovative genius. (laughs) I love that poem. I love that poem. I mean, I don't have to explain it to you. So you, you make a bigger context around it so that your mind isn't fighting. Third noble truth is that your mind does not have to fight. It can respond. I do not want a passive heart. One of the criticisms of uh, contemplative practice, which I don't hear so much anymore, but 20 or 30 years ago when meditation first became popular in the United States, people were worried and talked about if you meditated, you would rise above the fray of ordinary life and not be interested in it. That equanimity meant indifference. And really it's quite clear in, in, in Buddhist teachings and in my experience that equanimity and indifference are quite different from each other. That indifference has a quality of aversion in it. I don't want to know about this. Don't tell me about it. And equanimity is I do know about it and I have a broad palette of response available to me. And I have a broad enough space around that response 
that I can know I am responding, and it still is in the context I'm responding because this is happening, and it's okay, I can manage this. The third noble truth is that it's possible not to be in contest with what's happening with you. You don't have to struggle with it. You can respond to it. You don't have to react to it. So really, it's the difference between response and reaction, that you can choose what you do. There's a certain freedom in being able to say, okay, this is what's happening. I choose to do this in response, but I'm not fighting with it. I think probably the one line that I think more uh, reminds me of what I'm doing than anything is I don't want to be in contention with my life. I don't want to have a, a contentious relationship with my life. I want a friendly relationship with my life and with myself. When I notice that my mind is struggling with something, I struggle for a while, as I did with Madame. She shouldn't have done this for her. And then after a while, I realize I'm in pain. I'm really struggling with this. And then what should I do now? The moment of change is the moment of compassion when you realize there's a struggle here. We don't have to do this. We can do something else. And the fourth noble truth is the something else we can do. And the fourth noble truth is a program of practice that the Buddha laid out for followers. You know, sometimes that people ask, uh, there are so many different lineages of Buddhism. What do all Buddhists agree on? They all have different stories. They have different Buddha stories, where the Buddha came from, what he did, what he said. Different texts, different languages, different rites and rituals. But all of them will agree around the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. If, if in the course of the day you get to walk up as far as the fence to the upper hall, you can't go up to the upper retreat center because there's a retreat happening. But if you go up to the fence, there's a prayer wheel there, and you'll notice that it has eight facets on it. And those eight facets are wise understanding, wise aspiration, wise livelihood, wise action, wise speech, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. What we are going to talk about today are the wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration, which are the inner practices, the mind training practices that are part of that prescription for living in a peaceful way. I think we should sit a little bit first. I probably should tell you first that one of the things that I I noticed recently about myself is uh, it takes me a while sometimes to notice that I have wandered into a narrow place again. Maybe I'm driving along in my car and I remember something that happened, some interchange, some, you know, know, maybe perhaps in a meeting here at Spirit Rock, maybe talking to someone on the phone. 
something or other, and I'm going over it again and again in my mind. I'm thinking, they shouldn't have done this, I should have said this. Something or other in my body is perhaps getting tenser, and I'm thinking, but I'm right. Indignation is, you know, like the most seductive thing, you know, that when I'm right and the other person isn't, because you can really chew on the bone of indignation for a long time. It's like very vivifying for a while, and then it gets to be really uncomfortable because you don't get anywhere with it. But there's a moment in which I realize that whatever the text of the story is that I'm telling myself, that the truth of the story, the, the subtext or the, the ground underneath the text of the story is that I'm in pain about something. Otherwise, I wouldn't be chewing it over. Otherwise, I'd be driving along and looking at the flowers and listening to Frank Sinatra maybe on my tape deck or doing something or other. But the very fact that my mind is chewing over something means I'm in pain. And I discovered I'm always surprised it has taken me so long to get past the, the narrative to realize that fundamentally I'm in pain. And I will say to myself, honestly, I say this to myself, I say, sweetheart, you're in pain. Relax. Take a breath. What's really going on? I think actually that that's the whole of the instruction. That the first moment of that, that recollection of you're in pain, is, uh-oh, I have wandered in again into Egypt. I am stuck. I don't want to be here. I want to do something else. So it's a moment of right, wise effort. Let's do something else. Relax. Relax is a very paradoxical instruction to give. Like the mind thinks, relax, are you kidding? I'm all upset. How can I relax? But I think it's the paradoxical quality of it that startles. The, the, the instruction relax is not relaxing, but it's a reminder that you could. So, oh yeah, I could do something else. Partly it's a, a, a piece of wise effort the instruction to notice, is this good for me or is this not good for me? Which is how the Buddha taught wise effort. Just notice, is this a healthy, a wholesome mind state or not a wholesome mind state? It's not. You say, okay, I'm doing something else. And then take a breath. Okay, so taking a breath. Taking a breath is a, um, is one form of relaxing the mind. There are other things that you can do. You can say your prayers. You can repeat a mantra. There are other things that will relax the mind. But take a breath. You can do wherever you are because we're all always breathing. So it's not like start breathing. Now you are breathing. It means take a breath where you are paying attention to it. Take a breath that you're paying attention to it and tell yourself about the breath. Wow, that was a nice long breath. That was a long breath out. That was a long breath in. That was a shorter breath. That was a nice, relaxing breath out. And actually telling yourself in a narrative form, the description of the breath really means that in that moment, you have stopped telling yourself the narrative of what caused the distress. We can multitask. We are very, we're very good about multitasking, but we can't advance two <coughs> narratives at the same time. That's just true. So if you tell yourself about the breath, you're not telling yourself the story of the distress. It's giving your mind a little rest from it. And once the mind rests a little bit, it gets a clearer view of what's going on. That's really the whole instruction. Sweetheart, you're in pain. Relax. Take a breath. 
see what you want, see what's going on and see what you want to do next. That's really the whole instruction for practice in any part of your life, on the cushion in your life. So this is the part about take a breath. I think we'll probably sit uh, 12 minutes. That's long, actually, for maybe people who are just starting. But what I'd like you to do when you sit is sit in a comfortable place. Make yourself comfortable. See if you can sit quite still, because it's good for the mind to compose itself if you don't fidget. If you don't fidget your body, your mind tends to compose itself. Feel your bottom on the chair or on the floor or on a pillow. Feel the breath coming in and out of your body just by itself. You don't have to do anything about it. Your body gets breathed about 12 times a minute usually. Just like that. I actually like to feel all the ways that I can feel the breath moving in and out of my body, like my shoulders raising up and down and my arms coming out to the side and relaxing back down. or My back pushing against the chair, and I feel that a little bit. Sometimes I feel my chest expanding and relaxing down or my belly pushing out. Relaxing down. As you sit, you might want to um, use Thich Nhat Hanh's instruction to smile a little bit. Just a little bit. Relaxes your body. And then see if you can let your tension really rest in the breath. Mindfulness is paying attention to everything. Concentration is paying attention to one thing. Really trying to stay with one neutral experience in the hope that it really will compose the mind and body. And one of the ways that your attention will stay with the breath is if you name for yourself what's happening. Breath in or breath out, a long breath or short breath, where you feel the breath. Try it. I really did want to talk about equanimity. Um, It's a particular understanding of equanimity. It's not tranquility, which is extreme calm. Um, It's certainly not indifference. That equanimity is that uh, condition of mind that is uh, broad enough and balanced enough to maintain clarity about what's happening. and that allows, at, at least in my understanding, for really passionate response. You know, uh, 
whatever I thought I was going to get out of meditation practice, and who knows what, you know, it's, it's nearly almost 30 years now since I began. Next year will be 30 years. Um, I don't know what I really wanted out of practice 30 years ago. I think we were very, I, I was very much um, bewildered about what equanimity was and quite interested in all the magical things that presumably happened when people meditated like they levitated or they shone in the dark or all kinds of things. I heard stories about my grandmother shone in the dark, shined in the dark, really. Uh, and I, I thought it would be very nice if I could do that. <laughs> And it didn't happen. And in the beginning, I didn't tell anybody that's what I wanted because that seemed so... Um, now I don't mind telling people it's what I wanted. It didn't happen. But uh, but we thought all kinds of miraculous things would happen. I actually think a miraculous thing could happen, but that the miraculous thing would be that my mind could settle down and that it could manage to meet this life um, in a... In a uh, passionately engaged and non-contentious way. That's really what I want. That's what I think equanimity is. It's not blah. It's everything, actually. And it's the ability to not only experience everything, but to know that you are and to be able to respond wisely out of it. I'll tell you, um, let's do it this way. Uh, I'll tell you a Buddha story that uh, is very significant to me. I love it. It's uh, it's an image of the Buddha on the night of his enlightenment. It's said um, it's said that he left his home and his comfortable life, his wife and child, in fact, in order to discover for himself the cause of suffering and the end of suffering, and that he studied concentration practices for six years, three with one teacher, three with another teacher. And he became very, very adept at concentration practices. could do all kinds of uh, uh, such focused concentration that he wouldn't feel his body, that he could sit in the sun, he could fast for days, that he could overcome all of the normal kinds of uh, responses to the body's uh, connections to the body. And in the end, although both of his teachers found him to be so adept, they invited him to stay and teach with them, uh, his own response was that that didn't really answer the question of human suffering, that we suffer because we are in these lives and things don't go inevitably, they don't go the way we want. And not only do we feel sad about it, we suffer about it, we struggle with it. And his conviction that there must be some way in which the mind could open to the truth of the life and live it passionately and fully and let it go. Uh, Because what choice do we have other than that? I suddenly think in the middle of this exalted Buddha story, I'm going to tell you the thought that pops into my mind is uh, the story of Edith Stein. Uh, Edith Edith Stein? No, not Edith Stein. I'm telling you the wrong word. Wait a minute. Gertrude Stein, Edith Stein is somebody else. Edith Stein became, is is now canonized. Uh, Gertrude Stein, (laughs) of Gertrude Stein, of uh, Alice B. Toklas Gertrude Stein, when she was dying, presumably uh, uh, also on her deathbed with a very next to the last breath, or almost there, said, I accept the universe. And her doctor said, Madam, you'd better. (laughs) 
you know, uh, what, you know, what, <laughs> what is, <are the, laughs> we don't get a choice. <laughs> now, the Buddha would have said it earlier, <laughs> that's all. I hadn't thought of that until this very moment. I'm glad it popped into my mind. Maybe I could write about that sometime. Um, because we have no choice either to accept, in which case we can live with a fair degree, I mean, for however long we live, with delight in what in, in the extraordinariness of life. Or uh, we could fight with it and want it to be other. A friend of mine said, if you wanted it to be other, you came to the wrong planet. <laughs> On this planet, it isn't other. On this planet, it's like this. So here's the Buddha who said, I, I have these great capacities for concentration, but I have, and for removing myself from this life experience by so quietening my nervous system. But how to live in this life experience without suffering? That's what I need to know the answer to. And presumably it was that that sent him off on his quest for his own enlightenment. Went to Bodh Gaya, uh, according to the story, sat down under a certain particular tree there, and uh, made the... Um, firm determination not to get up from there until he was enlightened. I love that, you know. That particular little piece of the story just so tickles me, you know, because I think to, I tell people, it's also true, that when my mind is a mess, I, it's not unusual for me to sit down and say, I am sitting until I am completely enlightened. And everybody laughs because, you know, they don't imagine that I imagine that I'm going to be completely enlightened. But the truth is, that when I say that, I'm not getting up until my mind is clear about this, does something to my mind, and it helps it to clear about it. it. That moment of decisiveness is not the end of my trouble, but that moment of decisiveness does something. I really think that probably um, determination of all the ten paramitas, which I hope we'll get a chance to talk about some this afternoon, but determination may be key. It may be uh, the closest to uh, effort, that, uh, which in, in terms of talking about the heart of the path and wise effort, that determination may be the closest of the paramitas to uh, wise effort. That, that uh, firm intention, I will do it this way. So here's the Buddha, he sits down with firm intention, says, I will do it this way. Uh, and, pre and, and then this is the part of the legend that I want you to imagine with eyes open or eyes closed. But here's the picture, and I'll paint it for you. Here sits the Buddha, uh, actually in a cross-legged position under the tree with one, the fingers of one hand, one hand up in his lap, the fingers of his other hand, touching the ground, that's a really uh, a gesture of, I have a right to be here. Nothing can move me from this place. Because what happens at that point in the legend is that all the forces of confusion in the world, in the legend embodied in the personage of Mara, the temptress, the uh, confuser, Mara has arrived on the scene when you see drawings of it in books, you see Mara as a personage, you know, arriving sort of out of the clouds with armies of um, upsetting, um, upsetting elements that are now meant 
determined to upset the Buddha in his equanimity. And the Buddha has taken his seat. And uh, there's actually a poem in, in, um, in the scripture where Mara says, I'm going to get you, Buddha. And the Buddha says, you can't get me because I have concentration and I have uh, mindfulness, I have wisdom, I have faith, and I have energy. And uh, so I am safe here. Those, are, those show up in another list as later on as spiritual power. But I have the right to be here. He puts his hand on the ground. I have the right to be here. In the picture, here's the Buddha, uh, eyes closed, radiating equanimity. And um, in, this, in the legend, here comes Mara with every possible frightening um, thought or every possible, every possible fear. We would think of it as thoughts, but every possible fear it, it personified in armies. And you see the armies throwing spears at the Buddha, and here he's a Buddha sitting in equanimity. And you see that in the, in the pictures and in the legend, he's surrounded by a, um, an impermeable shield, uh, just a, a safe shield around him. And in the stories it says, when the arrows of uh, the armies of Mara encountered that shield of benevolence around the Buddha, they turned into flowers and fell to the ground, that the, the arrows were transformed into flowers. And I love that metaphor. You know, I, th- I think it's a metaphor. I don't think it actually happened. Maybe it did, but I don't think so. I think it's more a, 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 the, the message that the pain of... Um, um, aggressive thoughts, the pain of aversion, the pain of hatred and anger can be dispelled and can be changed. by When it is met by benevolence, it gets changed into something as beautiful and as benign as flowers. And we're safe. And that what, he, what is saving the Buddha at that point is his own benevolent heart, that he sits with equanimity, with nothing but goodwill coming out of him. It keeps his mind steady so that after all those armies of spears go by, here comes Mara with tempting erotic visions, uh, something that will, uh, the first was designed to stir up uh, aversion and anger and fear, and the second is designed to stir up (laughs) lust and confuse the mind of the Buddha. But the Buddha is surrounded so with a field of just benign goodwill that uh, it dissolves any kind of possible pull that those erotic visions could have. And he's unmoved. The story is then that Mara leaves, and he is established so established in his equanimity that his own understanding that he then later enunciates as those same Four Noble Truths that I told you earlier this morning, there is, there, there is the world. Suffering is when we struggle with it. The end of suffering and peace is a possibility. And these are the ways that you can cultivate it. Come out of that experience. And all of these ways that, that the, of that Eightfold Path, and particularly these three contemplative ways of right effort, right concentration, and right mindfulness, are designed to both establish equanimity and return the mind to equanimity when it gets knocked off itself, which it often does. All of those get stuck again 
just thinking which of the two stories that popped into my mind at one time I should tell you. Uh, one of them is funnier and one of them is more recent. And not so funny because I have to tell about myself. Well, maybe I do both of them because I do them short. Because the funnier one is so fun to tell. Uh, I was teaching six-year-olds, uh, sixth graders in Marin about the Buddha. And I was having them do, uh, I, I, t I told them that uh, mindfulness was paying attention and how good it was to pay attention and really, um, um, that it would be very helpful in school, that you wouldn't get distracted by classmates and you could do work even if other people were talking next to you and you wouldn't forget your homework and the, extolling the values of paying attention. I think mindfulness is very plain. It's about paying attention. We did some exercises, but one boy raised his hand and he said, in our book about India, they had just finished a unit on India, uh, it said that people who meditate can read your mind and they can know what was in the past and what's going to be in the future and what you're thinking right now. Is that true? And I said, well, you know, some people when they meditate, they get to have very particular extraordinary skills like that. And, uh, but that's not what we're doing here. That this is just about paying attention. It's just about plain paying attention. Mindfulness is very plain, paying attention. And I go back to what I'm doing, and he raises his hand again. And he said, in our book, it showed pictures of people lying on beds of nails and walking on hot coals, and said it could do that because they meditated. Is that true? I said, well, you know, it's actually true that some people that they meditate, they get really special, extraordinary relationship with physical pain, different from us. They have a kind of different awareness of their body, but only happens to special people. And that's not really not why we're meditating. It's really about paying attention. And I continue, and he said, and so there he was again, and he said, uh, Colin said, my, my grandson was in that class, he said, Colin said that you once met a woman who was such a good meditator that she could walk through walls. Is that true? Uh, so, in fact, it was true. Uh, I met a woman. She's dead now. She's... Uh, she was an Indian woman. She lived in Calcutta. Um, she came to this country. She was the teacher of my teachers. I met her. She stayed in my house for a week and had interviews with people right here in Marin who came to visit her. Uh, he said, uh, did you meet her? I said, I did meet her. She stayed in my house. Did you talk to her? I did talk to her. Did you see her walk through walls? I said, I didn't, but, you know, my teacher said that she could, so I guess if they said that she could, that she could. He said, how did she do it? <laughs> I said, well, I'm not sure, but uh, what my teachers told me is that she could concentrate so hard that her molecules all dissolved and that they could pass through the walls and then they reconstituted on the other side. So... Yeah, they're 26 children. They're all nodding their heads as if that's the most plausible thing. That's fine. <laughs> and I continued on, and nobody else talked about it. We just spent an hour and a half. We did some walking meditation. We did some breathing meditation. They were great. I had a wonderful time. Three days later, I got a package of letters from them, as one does when you teach in a grade school. Dear Sylvia, thank you so much for coming. Was really uh, enjoyed you did this, and I liked what you said about that, and I like this, and I like that. And one person wrote to you, Sylvia, da, 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 I liked all those things. 
Then he said, I'm still thinking about that woman <laughs> who concentrated so hard that she could walk through the wall. He said, what I want to know is if in the middle of the wall she became distracted. <laughs> would she get stuck in the wall forever? That I, it's, a, it's worthwhile telling you that story, isn't it? Because who here does not know someone who has had a grudge for 10 years or somebody who didn't talk to their siblings for 20 years or somebody who didn't X to their Y or couldn't... I get stuck in walls all the time of, of grudges, of yearning, of this, of that. I thought it was a great... First of all, I loved it that he was so determined to follow that through. I really liked that. But I also thought it was a wonderful metaphor for stuck in a wall. You get stuck in a, in, in a, in a thought that you get held hostage by, and you don't even know that you're held hostage by a thought until you realize, A, that you're suffering, or something else distracts you for a, mo for a moment, and you stop building that wall that you got stuck in. Because this, this, the wall that you got stuck in is a wall of your own ideas. And the minute you stop building it, the wall falls apart, and it's not there at all, and you go through it. You need often to be startled to be able to walk out of that wall. That was one of the stories. The other story, and I'm trying to think about how, where I was exactly in the Buddha story and why this makes sense at this point. I'll know it when I tell you the story. I just, I just, uh, I just recently flew back, uh, well, it was in January that I flew back from uh, France. It's a long flight from Paris to San Francisco. And for one reason or another, it seemed, you know, I, I noticed that people, even before they board, are sort of queuing up in an anxious way. Because everybody knows it's 11 hours and 45 minutes. It's a long time to sit in a confined space. So I think everybody's already a little bit stressed before they get on. And on that particular flight, it seemed like more people than normal didn't get the right seat according to what they think they should have gotten. So somebody complaining, I'm in the middle of this middle section, I can't sit there, I called months ago, I can't sit in the middle, but here I am. And someone else says, my family is three rows ahead of me, how come I'm here? And someone else says, I need to have an aisle, I have a bad ankle, I have to stretch my leg, and someone else, something else. Everybody's got something wrong. And we taxi out to the end of the runway, and the pilot comes on and says, um, we're going to have to sit here probably about an hour, they're telling me, in the control tower, because um, there's a fog around the air. Fog has settled on the airport, so they're delaying the flights. And, you know, part of me says, well, good, good, that's a very good idea, delay. I mean, don't take off in a fog. But the other part, uh, and the, the flights seem to have an enormous number of uh, toddlers on it who did not like being strapped into the seatbelts for an hour sitting there, and they're all wailing that inconsolable wail of a toddler. Actually, I was actually more grieved about the fact that all those things were stressors. I was stressed. This is, this is why I hesitate. It's embarrassing. I was stressed because my husband and I, who generally are the best of friends and have been together for since uh, forever, uh, had managed to offend each other the day before in such a way that we were both involved in pouting and not talking to each other. 
we don't fight, we just pout and sit there and are excessively polite to each other. And the, the mind gets so filled with the grievance, how could I possibly be with a person who could say that to me? You know, and it's such a clearly delusive thought because you don't stay with somebody 50 years if you couldn't possibly be with them. But still, the delusive thought takes up residence. Does that not happen to you? That the delusive thought takes up residence in your mind and it absolutely convinces you that it's true. And it stays there and then the mind just churns it over. So everybody, there's a fog outside and there's a fog inside. And we take off and uh, we're flying for some, maybe three, four, five hours. And I watch that little airplane on the little map. I like to watch the airplane on the map, that icon, because it convinces me that I'm going in the right direction and actually getting there. And at some point, the icon turns around and it starts going back. And everybody else is looking around because you see that the icon is going back. And then the pilot gets on and he said, uh, if there is any medical personnel on board, please come to the forward cabin so you can see what's going to come in this story. Actually, my husband is a physician, so he went up and didn't come back for an hour. And during that time, they announced, uh, we're going to land in an hour and a half in Halifax. Uh, we've had a medical emergency and we're going to land in Halifax in an hour and a half. And uh, then, but you're still watching the little icon and then it turns around again. From It's turned around going back to Halifax. Now it turns around again and the little notation says it's going to land in Edmonton in now three hours. So you know that whatever happened, this person is beyond medical help, and the reason they're landing in Edmonton is to refuel because they've made this extra. So during which time it seemed to me, it was maybe my uh, fantasy or maybe it was true, that the whole level of agitation in the plane settled down. Everybody who was agitated about where they were sitting, I think, got over it because they were still sitting. You know, I think to myself, I got to, you know, I think to myself suddenly, it's like the enormity of that person is not going to get off the plane in San Francisco. So the, the, the truth about life is really fragile. You know, you, don't, you never know when is the beginning and when is the end. You never know when someone dear to you is not going to be there anymore. You never know anything, really. Even when we think, well, you know, tonight I'll do so and so. That depends on my making it home healthy tonight, making it home without an accident. You think about the fact that, that this moment to moment, this is all just arising and passing away. And no matter how we want it to be, it could easily be otherwise. It so screws your head on right about what is important to do with this moment. So that suddenly the thought that's taken up residence in your mind, the delusive one, how can I live with a person who thinks a thing like that? You realize that thought is not only incorrect, I mean, not only ridiculously delusive since I've already lived with that person more than 50 years, but other than that, it's just one thought about that person. It's not the truth about that person. What the mind does is, actually the meaning of the word heresy is half-truth. You know, a heresy is a half-truth. It tells a piece of the truth, but not the whole truth. And our minds, when they get startled, 
for whatever reason, because they have to deal with some... I think biologically, because often when our mind gets startled, is because we have to jump out of the way of danger. So it's good that it rules out everything else. When you get driving in a blizzard, you're not thinking about how to ride a concerto. You're just figuring out how to ride in that blizzard. And the only thing you're doing is paying attention to it. And then after you're out from the blizzard, then you might be driving along and singing a tune. But the mind has to narrow down when it is threatened. What happens with minds is they not only get threatened by actual events that that require uh, real attention, but they get threatened by um, the habits of the mind that make stories out of stuff that aren't real. And they take up the whole attention. And then you need something to screw your head on straight to say, wait a minute, that's not what it's about. There is a bigger story here. What the Buddha did in that night is he figured out that there's a way in which the mind can struggle with things or it can relax around things. It can say, this is what's happening, what should I do? Uh, You can even think about uh, the mind that's agitated because it's just had a fight with somebody. It it doesn't mean you never have fights with somebody or that they don't offend you or or you don't offend them. You can say, my mind is feeling really offended because of what I heard. But probably it won't last. Probably it'll pass away. Everything passes away. Probably I could do two things now. Either I could think over that particular offense, or I could think about what a good time we had for the last month. Or I could think about all these people in the plane in trouble. I could wish them well. I could do something better. This is a, a really a story about right effort. I could notice the presence and absence in the mind of wholesome or unwholesome thoughts. This particular thought, how can I be with a person like this, is not a wholesome thought, and it's causing suffering. All these people on the plane that are having trouble getting there because their children are crying, or their ankle is stiff, or they're claustrophobic and they can't sit in the middle, I could sit and wish them well. And if I would do it, I can't, I can't get up and hold their children, really, but I could pray for them. I could think about them. I could take my mind away from where it's perseverating and put it somewhere else, which is right, right effort and right intention is. And I would, in that moment, be rescuing myself from the pain of that knot of the mind. Then, if I did that and my, pain, my mind unknotted itself... It would be able maybe to grasp the larger sense of that situation. You know, it's amazing that this big iron bird can pick up in the air and fly for 12 hours with 400 people in it. I mean, that's magic. A hundred years ago, no one thought that. It's not, it's just a hundred years since the Wright brothers flew 60 feet at Kitty Hawk. I mean, that's nothing. And here we go, 400 people in a plane for 12 hours and serve them meals and get them there safely. It's amazing. For the mind to be able to open to that and to be lifted up by that, it has to let go of whatever it's perseverating. And thinking of practice as the art of noticing, oh, I got caught. How can I uncatch myself now? What can I do? So we go back now, relax, take some breaths, do something else. I want us to sit a little bit, but then, but I also want to finish the story of the Buddha on that particular occasion. 
I want to say something else uh, in addition to his teaching of the Four Noble Truths. What he also taught and comes down to us as part of the legacy of the Buddha is his teaching of what has come to be called the Brahma-viharas, the divine abodes of the mind. That when the mind rests in equanimity, uh, when it is supported by all those factors of the Eightfold Path and it rests in equanimity, it is by its very nature kind. Just to use the metaphor of the airplane one more time, how many people here have ever taken a night flight, ever flew a red eye anywhere? <laughs> so you probably have the experience of you get up in the plane, you get up to go to the toilet in the night, and you walk from the front to the back or the back to the front, however it is, and you see all of these people that you don't know in various stages of scrunched up and uncomfortable. You see how people are lying around in planes in the night. You know, in the day they sit up, but in the night they get themselves wound up in blankets and they try against all odds to make themselves comfortable in those seats that are too small. Scrunched up. And, and then you see the people who are traveling together, or you imagine they're traveling together because they're scrunched against each other. They're leaning. And then the people who are not traveling together, they're trying not to scrunch on the people that they don't know because it wouldn't be nice to scrunch on a stranger. So everybody is struggling. And the people are sleeping and they've got a child in their lap sleeping or a child over here sleeping. Nobody is comfortable in that flight in the night. But you go and you have a good feeling about them, don't you? Don't you feel kindly about them, like I hope they get there good? I do because, you know, I'm not afraid of flying, so my mind is at ease. When I fly, and I and I tell you that story because what the Buddha taught as the basic understanding of the human mind is that when it's at ease, it is by its very nature benevolent, and it's benevolent first of all because that's its inclination, and second of all supported by the awareness that life is difficult for everybody. The plane is a metaphor. That particular journey is difficult for everybody. Because you have to sleep sitting in a cramped quarters. But if you extrapolate that metaphor to life, it's difficult. Everybody has to get from the beginning to the end of it. And with all kinds of challenges in it, all kinds of discomforts in it. People tell each other stories on planes. Uh, They tell sometimes stories that they wouldn't tell in other circumstances because they're not going to see this other person again. And they said, but people share their whole stories. And when you hear a story, you hear everybody's got a complex story. Everybody's got a universe. So my sister didn't talk to me after she misinterpreted what my mother said to me. And then 10 years, we didn't talk to each other. That isn't my story, but it's somebody else's story. But then you realize you know somebody else whose sister didn't talk to them or somebody else's this, didn't that. The, the names are changed, but the stories are the same. The stuff of life is more or less the same. It's interchangeable who gets pancreas cancer or who gets breast cancer or who gets this or who gets that or who has triplets or who gets a Fulbright or, you know, just everybody gets everything and some of the joys and some of the woes and everybody making it from one end to the other the best they can. And the view of the Buddha, which is, I think, such an inspiring view of human beings, is that our own heart inclines in the direction of goodness and supported by that wisdom that comes out of equanimity. You just look around, your mind is balanced. 
that wisdom, everybody is doing a life the best they can, really supports the heart to be kind. On top of that, there's a three layers of um, uh, parsing out that kindness so that it comes out in three particular different flavors. One of the things the Buddha taught and one of the things that I think you'll uh, experience, we'll do it as part of our meditation quite soon, is that every moment of our experience arises with a certain uh, valence of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral about it. That uh, even before we um, name an experience, there's a way in which the experience happens, registers, and we know already if it's pleasant or unpleasant. Like all of a sudden if we're sitting here meditating and there's a suddenly sound of the, of the heater, that before we even figure out, well, that's the heater, well, that's a good thing, the room is cool, so it's heating it up. Before that, we think, oh, sound, unpleasant. Oh, all right, it's the heater. It's the heater. Oh, well, then that's okay, because it's a good thing, the heater is heating the room. 